Coming to you live. It is Monday. Daladada Tafshin Ayin Hay from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York. I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. <laughs> Just in time for Chodesh Adar, Gadi Feingold, brand new music debuting here on the Israel Show. Muchrachim lihiot sameach. We must be happy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Israel Show. We are heard each and every Monday live, immediately following JM in the AM. That's 9 AM Eastern, 4 PM Israel time. And around the world at any time you wish, on demand via the podcasts and the websites. Thank you so much for joining us, for tuning in, for making us a part of your day and your week. We are going to spend part of today's show discussing history, the history of Israel, of course. Um, today is the yard site of Menachem Begin, but we will not be focusing on him. We'll be focusing on a different leader of the underground. His name was Avraham Stern. He was known as Yair. He was murdered. Uh, last week was his yard. It's at Kafhe Shvat, 12 February 1942. 
and uh, we'll try and acquaint you a little bit with who he was. Was killed um, at a very young age. I believe he was 34 when he was uh, killed, murdered. And um, we'll play a song that he wrote, actually. Uh, we'll tell you about the elections, the upcoming elections in Israel, and uh, other stuff, news and events. We have a lot of great music as well, a lot of debuting music that we'll share with you. So, stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the links to the music that we play, including the one we just played now, the brand new song from Gadi Feingold, will be posted a little later on today at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Israel Show. This is Hanan ben Eliyahu. We've played him before. This is relatively new. It's the first parak of Tehillim. And uh, interesting, I don't know if I mentioned this previously, Hanan ben Eliyahu, I found out, used, Chen, Chen ben Eliyahu, I'm sorry, used to be a professional Israeli basketball player. Yeah, very cool. I think he's like 6'5", or something like that. Um, so this is off of um, his album. I think I think it's an album of, uh, of Shirei Kodesh, Chen Ben Eliyahu, the first parak of Tehillim. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> וכל אשר יעשה יצליח שרי האיש אשר לא הלך בצד רשעים ובדרך חטאים לא אמר ובמושב לצים לא ישר כי אם בתורת אדוני חפצו ובתורתו יגה יומם ולילה והיה כעץ שתול על פגי מים אשר פיו על כן לא יקומו רשעים במשפט וחטאים בדעת צדיקים כי יודע אדוני דרך צדיקים דרך רשעים Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
Chen Ben Eliyahu. First parak of Tehillim. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You, 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 you are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we are live. It means now it is live. Not necessarily when you're listening to it, but right now it is. And we thank you so much for tuning in and making us a part of your day. Elections in Israel are less than one month away. Less than one month away. And there is so much to talk about. We could stay here for five hours and talk about it, and we still wouldn't finish talking about it. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I'm going to try to explain how the Israeli elections work. We'll do a, a short version of that, and then explain to you some of the ramifications thereof. And in order for this explanation to be easier for me, I am going to make up numbers, meaning we're going to make believe there are 100 seats in the Knesset, even though there are 120, and we're going to use make-believe numbers for the voters. The concept, the overall concept is that the, the that Israel is run, is governed by, not by the Knesset, by the government. There's the prime minister. He is, in fact, the most powerful person. He is sort of like the president in the United States. He has ministers in his government. There are, the top ministers are the Minister of Defense, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and usually also the Minister of Finance. And usually those are the people that run the country. The Prime Minister and the top four or five ministers in his cabinet. But how do you get to be the Prime Minister? And who gets appointed as ministers in this cabinet and therefore have the power to govern? And the answer is, the Knesset, which is sort of elected by the people, the Knesset has to vote. And when you get a majority in the Knesset, your party gets a majority in the Knesset, then you can govern and put together um, a, a government. How do, so who is elected? Not the government. The elections are not even for prime minister. The elections are for seats in the Knesset. And how do they get, how does that work? You don't vote for any particular person. This, it's not like Congress where, or Senate where the seats in the Senate and the, and the House are, um, related to geographical area. There's a senator from each, two senators from each state and then there's a congressman from each area within the state. Doesn't work like that in Israel. In Israel, everybody is voting. It's one big pool, and you are voting for a slate of people headed by the guy that you would like to be the prime minister. But you're actually voting for him at the top and a whole bunch of people underneath him who will occupy the Knesset seats that that this party wins. These are the parties or the slates. A list of people, and that's who you vote for. So when you go into, <laughs> I'm going to say the voting booth, and it sort of is the voting booth. As an aside, I'll say that the system, believe it or not, works with little, little pieces of paper, little pieces of paper, a few inches by a few inches, and each piece of paper has letters that represent the parties on them. And you put it in an envelope, and you put that in an envelope, and you stick it into a box, and then it's counted by hand. It's unbelievable that this startup nation, leader of high tech in the world, votes with little pieces of paper inside envelopes. Anyway, that was an aside. Um, so you're voting for a party. You can vote for the Likud party. You can vote for the Labor party. You can vote for the Merits party. You can vote for the religious parties. You can vote, like, for example, the Guda or Shas. Whatever it is, you're voting for a party, not for a person or a specific person or people. You're voting for the party. The party has established different ways, each party is different, has established a list of people, the one at the top and all the people underneath. So those are the people that are going to get the Knesset seat that the party earns in the elections. And how does that work? Well, at the end of the elections, you count up all the votes that were cast on election day. Let us say, for example, 100,000 votes were cast. These are made-up numbers. And there are 100 seats in the Knesset. So therefore, proportionately, every 1,000 votes that you get, every 1,000 votes 
your party gets a seat in the Knesset. Okay, so if you got 3,000 votes, you get three. If you got 30,000 votes, or in this case 30% of the votes, you'll get 30% of the seats, you'll get 30 seats in the Knesset. But, as we just said, in order to govern, the Knesset must give you a majority. You must get more than half, one more than half. In our example, it will be 51. In reality, it's 61, but that aside. You need 51 Knesset members. But in the history of the State of Israel, no party has ever won in the elections, even in the very first election where there was pretty much one party in charge. Never did a party get a majority of the Knesset seats. So, the usually, the largest party, the one that received the largest number of votes and therefore the largest number of seats is usually given the job by the President of Israel to put together a government by doing what? By getting other parties that are ideologically affiliated with them that they can sit together and govern, right? You can't put together a a radical left-wing party and a radical right-wing party because they'll never agree on anything. So the party that gets the most votes and has the best chance of putting together a majority based on the number of Knesset seats that it won in the election is tasked with doing that. The head of the party is tasked with doing that and if he gets, I think, three weeks and if he succeeds, then that is the prime minister. And the other parties that join, depending on how big or small they are, get different ministerial positions and it's horse trading, basically. So, for example, in this past election, Benjamin Netanyahu and his party got, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say they got 20-something seats or 30 seats. I think it was 20-something seats. It needed the Yeshatid party that had 19 seats. It needed the Bayit Yehudi that had 12 seats. It needed a, um, a few other smaller parties and put together a coalition as long as on the day that the government is formed, you have 61 hands up in the Knesset, a majority. You get to govern. Now, it makes it difficult if you're the largest party, but you've only got 20-something seats. It makes it very difficult to govern because you are constantly ob- obligated towards your partners. And the more partners you have, the more pressure on you to keep this coalition together and each party, of course, has their own interests. It is because of this situation that Benjamin Netanyahu decided, I believe, to call for new elections. And you can do that at any time, by the way. You can call for new elections. There's no, you're, officially it's a four-year term, but I, I don't believe it's ever been, uh, uh, actually, uh, for a government lasted for four full years. So, Netanyahu, because he did not do well in the last elections, his party, they had to put together a coalition, an agreement with other smaller parties. Netanyahu felt that was the hand he was dealt wasn't good. He now wants to get a larger piece of the pie. He wants to be less uh, obligated to others in order to be able to rule so he feels better. And that's why he called for elections. That might be a big mistake. We don't know. Uh, we'll go to music, and then we'll continue this discussion. We'll explain what the ramifications of the system are, because when you think it out, it, it is rather amazing. Who suffers and who benefits when more people vote or less people vote? At the Ankari with Millionin, my name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. I know that you 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 know that you
Ankeri with Millionim, very cute words to that song. My name is Mayor Weingarten, you're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you so much for joining us. I never know when I'm explaining this Israeli election system whether I've lost, I mean when I'm sitting in front of people, I don't know if I've lost them or not, and surely when I'm discussing it on the program, and I don't see the people in front of me, I hope I haven't lost you. But uh, I will try and explain it, um, uh, the second part of it now, hopefully will be intelligible and understandable, even if you lost me in the first part. So basically we were explaining that the Israeli system, the Knesset, is elected on a proportionate basis, meaning that you get the number of seats in the Knesset that your party gets is the proportion of the votes that you got. Okay? So if there are... We said, for for the sample example, we'll say there are 100 seats, even though there are 120, there are 100 seats in the Knesset, and let's say 100,000 people voted. So for every thousand votes, you get one seat in the Knesset, and then the majority, if you have a majority in the Knesset, or you put together a group of people together, you're the majority, then you can govern. But there are numerous caveats, and one of them, one of the major ones, is that over the years, the Knesset has passed laws that that 
really create a situation that small parties, little small splinter parties of one or two, will not make it into the Knesset in order to make it easier to govern, so they've said. And now, that threshold is at four seats, meaning you need to get a minimum of four percent of the vote in order to get into the Knesset, meaning if you have enough votes, as we said in our example, let's say you got 2,000 votes. There were 100,000 people who voted. 100,000 people voted. You got 2,000 votes. You should be entitled to two seats in the Knesset, but based on the law, you get no seats in the Knesset because unless you got at least 4,000 votes, your party does not doesn't count. That you haven't hit the threshold. And so smaller parties that represent smaller, whether they're ideological groups or religious groups and so forth, really are hurt by this law. And the idea was that by doing that, the, the, uh, the ruling party will not be so subservient to these small little splinter parties. But what's the problem here? The problem is that being that it's proportionate, let's say instead of 100,000 people voting, 200,000 people voted. Well, now, to get one seat in the Knesset, you need 2,000 votes. And to pass the threshold, instead of 4,000 votes, you need 8,000 votes. And if you're a small party and you're hoping just to make it, and the number of people who voted grows your chances diminish. And being that the system is basically rigged by law to prefer the large parties, all those votes, what happens to them? They get split up, the votes of the party that didn't make it, all those votes get split up amongst the larger parties. And so, at the end of the day, even though, for example, let's say, Prime Minister Netanyahu's party really could gets 23% of the vote, they may end up with 24 or 25% of the seats in the Knesset because of these, these, these lost votes, so to speak. And so the more people that vote, it favors the larger parties. The smaller parties lose out. How does that affect this election? The Arab parties, there were two or three Arab parties in the past that would run. Some of them made it, some didn't. Now that the threshold has been raised to 40%, four seats, 4%, um, they felt that they may not make it. So they united. All the Arab parties, and some of them hate each other, believe. Some are communists and some are not communists. Some are socialists and some are actually more democratic than others. They united. And they actually might be the thir- second or third largest party at the end of this election. Now, being that they united and and there'll be a large party, they actually stand to gain from any small party that doesn't make it. And so, the left-wing organizations in Israel are really teaching the Arab parties how to get out the vote. In fact, there was a delegation of um, Arab mayors and members of Knesset and party leaders that came to America. They were brought here by a left-wing organization and had a seminar, I believe it was a week-long seminar, on how to get out to vote, how to go door-to-door and get more people to vote. And it doesn't even matter who you vote for. That's the trick here. They don't care who you vote for. As long as you vote, because the more people that vote, the harder it is for the religious parties like Shas and Eli Shai's party that split. It's going to be harder for each of them to make it. It'll be harder for Kahlon's party to make it. It'll be harder for each of them to make it because they'll need more votes per Knesset seat. That's what's happening. And that's why you'll see the enthusiasm and excitement amongst the left about getting out to vote. You must vote. Get out to vote in the Arab population and in other places. The other part of the elections that I think is crazy is really what the, what the agenda now in the, in the media. The agenda now is bashing Netanyahu on a personal level. Him and his wife, 
the, the crazy controversies about recycling and refunding bottles and, and, and how much waste there was in the prime minister's house or not. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Instead of discussing big issues like, like the fact that Iran is going to get a bomb and the United States is going to allow them, we're talking about silliness, literally silliness. It's, it's beyond comprehension. Anyway, hopefully, uh, that was clear. Let me know. You know, send me an email, mayor at nachumsegel.com, or you can uh, post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Israel Show. Let me know if uh, that was clear or not. Coming up, we are going to tell you about a um, little bit of history, Yair Abraham, Yair Stern, whose Yortzeit was last week. Today is Menachem Begin's Yortzeit, but we're going to focus on Yair Stern and um, his, his, his short life and history. We promised you a debut of Danny Sanderson's new song. Danny Sanderson was uh, one of the geniuses behind Poogie, and he put out a new song working towards a new album. It's called Lo Kedai Lee. Not worth it. And we'll do that right after we remind you that the Israel Show is sponsored by Nefesh Benefesh. They're a great organization to have events coming up to help make your Aliyah as successful as possible. Sunday, March 15th, mega event in New York. Please do visit their website, nefeshbenefesh, nbn.org.il, nefeshbenefesh, nbn.org.il. You'll see all about the big mega events. There's one in L.A., there's one in New York, there's one in South Florida area, and um, check it out. Their website's interesting even if you're not making Aliyah like tomorrow, so do check it out. And the Israel Show is proud to be sponsored by Nefesh Benefesh. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network and Arutz Sheva English Language Radio. Welcome one and all. Here it is, debuting for you, Donnie Sanderson's new song, Lo Kadaili. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Danny Sanderson. Oh, he is so witty. Lokadai Lee, Lokadai Lo, Lokadai La. We are debuting it here. It's brand new from Danny Sanderson, formerly of Pugi and of Dota and of Gazos. Oh, come on. If you know anything about Israeli music, you know who Danny Sanderson is. I don't have to introduce him. But I'll introduce me. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. As promised, we are going to go back in time. We're going to try and capture a little piece of Israeli history. From the time that the Jews began returning to the land of Israel in the late 1800s, and more so in the uh, early 1900s, they were met by terrorism. It, It hasn't changed. If you think it's new, if you think it started in 1967 with the quote-unquote occupation, it's not true. There were were major terrorist events in the early 1920s. The British took over in about 1917 or 18. In 1929, the terrorist Events, Me'orot, Tarpat, they were called, Tafresh Peitet, really sent a, a chill down the spine of most people, most of the Jewish population. Before that time, there was a Jewish defense group because the, the small Jewish towns and, and farming villages were constantly being attacked by local Arabs, so the Jews had various different self-defense groups, and the major one was called the Haganah. And that was the one supported by the Jewish establishment, by the Mapais, the Ben-Gurions. They were a defense organization. In 1929, when the Arab uprising began, parts of the Haganah decided to split off because they wanted to be more active, not just in defense, they wanted to be more active against the British occupation of Palestine, what was called Eretz Israel. And part of that group included someone by the name of Avraham Stern. His, his, uh, his underground name was Yair, and he was known as Yair Stern as well, or just Yair. So the Haganah, which was the initial establishment defense organization split and the split the splinter group originally was called the Haganah Bet but later on it became called the Irgun Tzva'i Leumi or the Etzel many of you might know it later in history Menachem Begin later not much later but later in history Menachem Begin came to be the commander of the Etzel the Etzel then split as well. And the reason was ideological. When World War II began, the leadership of the Etzel, the the real leader, the top leader was Zev Jabotinsky. His idea was that Jews should not fight the British because the British were fighting the Nazis. And we shouldn't take away from the focus of the British people and the British army to fight the Nazis. However, people like Avram Stern, like Yair and others, felt that that's a mistake. That even though World War II was going on and the British were fighting the Nazis, the Jews had to fight the British in order to gain their independence. And so, another splinter group split off from the Etzel, and they were called Lochamei Chirut Yisrael, known as the Lechi. Later on, Head of the Lechi, a name that you might be familiar with, was Yitzchak Shamir, later became Prime Minister. So, heads of the Etzel and the Lechi eventually became Prime Ministers of Israel, Menachem Begin and Yitzchak Shamir. But the head of the Lechi, when it split, was Avraham Stern. In fact, he wrote the song, both the words and together with his wife, the melody, for the anthem. The anthem that initially served the Etzel, and then later the Lechi, called Chayalim Almonim. Anonymous soldiers, soldiers without names. We'll play it for you at the end of the segment. Shlomo Artsy has an interesting version of it, and we'll play that. 
So, in, uh, if you will, in order of radicalism, if you will, you have the Haganah, the Etzel, and the Lehi. And Avram Stern is the head of the Lehi. The British couldn't deal with the Lehi. They were very violent. They pulled off all kinds of, um, what we would call, what we would probably call some terrorist acts in, uh, on behalf of the Jewish people. It wasn't just defense. And they also would rob banks and uh, in order, they, you know what, it's, it's probably questions of ends and means. They felt that the ends justified the means. And, and they were very, a very violent group. And so the British police decided they've got to capture as many of their leadership as they can and put an end to it. And so, on the 12th of February 1942, after they got a lot of information about where they thought Yair Stern was hiding, he was hiding in somebody's small apartment in the center of Tel Aviv, they raided that apartment. Now, we'll go back for a minute. I'll tell you that Abraham Stern was born in 1907. He was, he was, he, he was a young man. He was not even 40 when he was killed. He was born, by the way, in the um, Polish town of Suwałk. And the reason I mention it is because if you've gone to YU, you've heard of Rav David Lifshitz, the Colonel of Rocha. He was known as the Suwałk Rav, and that's the town. He was the Rav, Rabbi Lifshitz, Rav Lifshitz, Rav David Lifshitz, was the Rav in the town of Suwałk. And this is the town that Avram Stern was born was born in. He left that town as a as a young man. He was a very talented person. As much as we don't think of sometimes I at least, we don't think of, of people who are considered radical and violent to be talented in the arts. He was a very talented artist, a writer, a poet, an actor. In his short life he, he did a lot. And um so now he is hiding out in this apartment in the center of Tel Aviv. It's a top floor apartment. The British police knock on the door. He runs and hides in the closet. That's what he always did. Anyone who would come, he would run into the closet. Very few people knew where he was. But the British already had the feeling that he was there and the officers decided to search the apartment. They do. They open the closet door, and there they find Avram Stern. There they find Yair, the commander of the Lehi, one of the most wanted people in the British Mandatory Palestine, Eretz Israel at the time. They tie his hands and plan to take him, to arrest him, and take him to prison. In comes one of the heads of the British police by the name of Jeffrey Morton. Jeffrey Morton claims, and did so till his dying day, that Avram Stern tried to run away through a window, and he, Morton, was afraid that Stern had some explosives and his life was threatened. But there's so many holes in that story, it is so not credible and later on in history, the only other person that was in the apartment at the time testified to the fact that Morton went up to Stern, who was bound, his hands were bound, pushed him towards the window and shot him in cold blood, murdered him. This many, many years later. Most people in Israel divided by party lines. Those on the right felt that the British murdered him. Those on the left went with the with, with the uh, with the line that the British fed them that he was trying to run away. I believe it is quite clear, even admitted to by third parties who have now researched this issue that the British police literally murdered in cold blood Avram Stern, the head of the Lehi. A book recently published, which I read, called The Reckoning, 
by author, British author Patrick Bishop, almost says it straight out. Although, quite frankly, I, I wouldn't recommend the book. I think it is rather skewed. But makes it clear that Jeffrey Morton, even though he claimed all his life that he didn't, that he was threatened, he basically murdered Avraham Stern. That happened on Chavchet Shvat, Taf Shin Bet, 12 February 1942. What would have happened to him? I don't know. Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, went on to become prime ministers, would have would his personality have allowed that for Avram Stern? Yair Stern, we don't know. He had one child who never met him. His child was born three months after he was murdered. He is named Yair after him. And Yair Stern is known a lot in Israel. He uh, was a newscaster and later became head of Israel Broadcast Authority, Rishud Hashidur. Yitzhak Shamir has a son who in this past government was a minister. He's the head of one of the arms manufacturing, Rafael, I believe, or Tasiavirit. Also, looks exactly like his father. Amazing. And that's their legacy. Last week, in the little shul that members of the Etzel and the Lechi used after 1948 in Yerushalayim, they established a shul because they were basically shunned by the um, J- Jewish establishment, by the Mapai establishment, the left-wing socialist establishment. That shul, ironically called Achdut Yisrael, last week in that shul, a new Sefer Torah was dedicated in memory of Avram Stern and Yitzhak Shamir, leaders of the Lechi. Chayalim Al-Monim is... Uh, the anthem that Yair Stern wrote, words and melody he wrote with his wife, Chayalim Almonim Hinanu, we are soldiers without names, Blimadim without uniforms, Usvivenu Eimavet Salmavet, we are surrounded by fear and death. Kulanu Guyasnu Lecholachayim, we are enlisted for life, Mishura Mishachrer Rak Hamavet, only death can release us from our commitment and from the um, the armed struggle that we have sworn ourselves to. Here's Shlomo Artsy with Chayalim Almonim in memory of Yair Stern. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. <laughs> Shlomo Artsi, Chelim Almonim, 
If you are in Israel, by the way, you can visit the Lehi Museum, which was established, um, I believe, after Menachem Begin became Prime Minister. Let me see. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it opened in 1985, yes. Um, it is the actual building where the murder took place, and you can see the room in which it happened. It is all set up. It is called uh, Museon Halechi, the Lechi Museum, or Beit Yair. And it is in Tel Aviv on what is today called Avram Stern Street. At that time, it was Rehov Mizrahi Bet. It's in the Florentine section of Tel Aviv. So um, you can make your way up there and see where it happened and uh, get all the information about it in the Lechi Museum. In Tel Aviv. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Last week we uh, paid tribute to the memory of Uri Orbach, another uh, non-radical, but a writer and a, such a talented person who unfortunately died at a, the young age of 54. Uh, at his funeral, his family um, told us that one of his favorite songs was uh, Erev Mul Hagil Ad, which was written by Leah Goldberg. A new version of that song was just released. We'll play it for you now. Dror Karen and Osnat Harel sing this version. In fact, in Israel, the concept of having music at a funeral, meaning that the family members sing without, necessarily without instrumentation, sing a song that was very poignant, meaningful to the niftar, to the person who passed away. I, from what I've researched, there is no halachic problem with it, although it is it, it, it is a new minhag. Um, they said that Uri Orbach wasn't sure whether he was for it or against it, but at his funeral, Arik Sinai sang, he was the one who sang the original, they sang Erev Mul Hagilad. Here's the new version. On the Israel show, we're debuting it here. Thank you. 
Part of uh, just released album, Leah Goldberg, Koloshel Halev. Leah Goldberg was uh, one of the great poets, one of the great Hebrew poets of the previous generation. And um, this album has ten songs, all remakes of very popular Leah Goldberg songs. We'll play more as the weeks go on. We'll end this show with Rami Kleinstein and the... Um, Wow. I, I, I want to say something and I can't say it. I, I can't remember what it is. The title track is what I'm looking for. The title track of his new album, Atanot Ketanot. But first we will say thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all your Facebook likes and comments. Thanks to the staff of the Nachum Siegel Network and my very special thanks as always to Nachum Siegel. This weekend, this past weekend, two shows were added to the Nachum Siegel Network lineup. Eternal Flame with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson and Headlines with David Lichtenstein. Both will follow immediately. That means uh, 10 o'clock, well, I shouldn't say it that way, but right after this show, Eternal Flame, and right after that, an hour after that, Headlines with David Lichtenstein. Stay tuned for both of those immediately following us. And then the great Monday Music Marathon Make takes you through the day. Until next Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last. They're just running in a different race.
של... 